You are listening to the podcast from Mosaic Church. Stay tuned after it for more info about how to get and stay connected with our church family. Now, let's dive into this week's message. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for being here today. Great to see everybody online in the room. Thanks for being involved, as you heard, with Mosaic Street Ministry. Thanks for getting involved with Project Christmas. Appreciate you. Did you have a nice holiday this week? Yeah. James did. Yes, I heard that. Very good. We did too. Very thankful, very grateful for all of you. Uh, We've been looking at the theme of reversal in the Gospel of Luke, and starting next week, we will be moving ahead into the final days of the life of Jesus of Nazareth. But before we go there, we do have one final week uh, of the series within a series we've been looking at from the midsection of Luke's Gospel, all about Jesus' teaching on money, possessions, and generosity. And our scripture reading today is going to be from Luke chapter 14. You can follow along on the screen or in your Bible. Verse 7, when he noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table, he told them this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor for a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, give this person your seat. Then humiliated, you will have to take the least important place. But when you are invited, take the lowest place so that when your host comes, he'll say to you, friend, move up to a better place. Then you will be honored in the presence of all the other guests. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted." Then Jesus said to his host, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives, or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back, and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you'll be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. And that's the reading of God's word. All his people said, amen. Amen. Yeah. So what could be more appropriate today, this weekend, this coming month than a passage on parties? (laughs) Yeah, sure. It's all here, right? I mean, there's parties, uh, hosting, feasting, guests. There's some drama with the guest list, some drama with the seating chart happening here. What more could you ask for at this party? And the answer is actually, if you're Jesus and you're at this party, you're going to ask for a lot more. If you're Jesus, you're going to ask that no matter who you are at this party, whether you're the host or the guest, whether you're wealthy or not so much, if you live in a home or on the streets, he's going to ask them then and us today to trust him about a subject it's hard for a lot of folks to trust anybody about, and that's the subject of our money and our possessions. If you're Jesus, you're going to ask people to trust you when you tell them three things right here in Luke chapter 14. Jesus today is going to ask us to trust him when he shows us these things. Number one, why extraordinary sacrificial giving is completely unreasonable. He's going to show us number two, why extraordinary sacrificial giving is completely reasonable. And number three, maybe in the end, why reason has nothing to do with generosity at all. Let's go here and begin at number one and look at the passage and see why extraordinary sacrificial giving, yes, is completely unreasonable. We'll begin back in verse one. 
of this chapter. It wasn't in the reading, but verse one sets the stage for the entire scene. It says this one Sabbath when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee. So here this is telling you Jesus has made his way into a house where there's a party going on. And if you know anything about him at all, Jesus is, yeah, he's sort of like the original wedding crasher, the original party crasher. Sometimes he's invited to your party. Sometimes he's not. Sometimes he just shows up whether you invite him or not. And here he is again crashing yet another party. But this isn't just any kind of party he's crashed. This isn't like a festive holiday thing you've hosted. Uh, This wasn't like a birthday thing or a fancy dinner party. No. What Jesus was attending here, what he had crashed, was a specific kind of banquet that sat at the cultural and financial epicenter of the Greco-Roman world. The Greco-Roman financial world was based on something called the patronage system. And the patronage system, what this kind of party was based on, worked like this. The only way for someone to be upwardly mobile in that culture was through connections with the wealthy, prominent people in their or your community. If you wanted to improve your station in life, you had to make a connection with the wealthier, more influential person called a patron who would support you with loans and money and their connections. And the reason that the patron would in turn support you, you being less well off than them, is if they perceived you also had something to offer them, like relationships within the business community or, the, uh, or other community leaders. They believed you could give them to help them grease the skids of their business, help them get their way in the culture or prosper them even more. And so your goal, if you wanted to get ahead, was to become a favorite of the patron, even if it meant that now you owed them, even if it meant that now you were, yeah, at their beck and call, that's what you would do. And so again, you to move upward, you would throw as lavish and expensive a party as you possibly could and invite the wealthy. And sometimes, if you were lucky, the wealthy would come because they would want to find out if you were a person could help them. So now they'd have a tin, and of course, they'd eat your shrimp cocktail for free. Patrons would come to parties to find favorites, and you would throw a party in the hopes of becoming a favorite, and so hit the cultural and financial jackpot. And of course, this kind of thing still happens all over the world in different ways. But the point is, this was the kind of party that Jesus had crashed and walked into. It was a patron party. And then something happened. Verse 7. When he, Jesus, noticed how, with what kind of motivation, with what kind of design, with what kind of intent, the guests picked the places of honor at the table. Oh, wait, why would you pick the place of honor at a table? Of course, it was so that you would be noticed by the wealthy, by the powerful, by the influential. Moving on to verse seven. When he noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table, he told them this parable. And the parable goes like this. We read it. Jesus said, listen, basically, don't be that guy. Don't be that guy who exalted himself. Don't be the guy who chooses a seat of honor without being invited there. And then you have to be sent away, humiliated, back to the room where everybody watches you do the walk of shame, back to the lower place. Don't be that guy. Instead, Jesus said, be the one who sits at the back and then waits to be called up to the front and is honored, not disgraced, in front of everyone. 
He's telling this parable to make a point about, hear me, about the heart of the gospel itself, which works on the principle of spiritual reversal. Verse 11, for all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. And then, and then, and then Jesus turns to the host, can you believe it? He turns to the one funding the party that Jesus wasn't even invited to. Jesus turns to the one paying for all the food. He turns to the one who is paid for the chicken tenders in his hands with the cane sauce or the double-double with the waffle fries Jesus is holding in his hand at the very moment at this party he's not even supposed to be at. Jesus, the gall. Jesus, imagine this, turns to the host and says, verse 12, then he says to his host, When you, sir, paying for the food I'm eating, when you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives, your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back and so you'll be repaid. What's Jesus saying here? Is he inherently critiquing your Thanksgiving dinner you just had? Is he, you know, throwing some shade at your Christmas party you've sent out the invites for, well, maybe... A little, but not necessarily. He's doing something else. And let me try to show you why. Because when you read this, you're like, is Jesus saying, I can never invite my relatives over again? Is that what he means? Because if so, that's the word of the Lord for me. I've been waiting for that one for years. Thank you, Lord. You're my permission giver. Glory to God. I knew it right here. (laughs) But let's think about it because... If that's what he means, if he's saying you can never invite your family, then what if, say for example, you began to put your faith in him? What if you began to follow Jesus and trust him? And let's say you wanted to share your faith with your friends and family. If what he means literally is this, then you couldn't do it. Like no evangelism for you, right? Is Jesus saying, don't tell your friends and family about me? No, that can't be right. No, he isn't saying, don't ever invite your friends or family. No, he's using a Semitic idiom, a Semitic idiom. Idioms, of course, are things that make sense within the context of your language, but not necessarily in another. For example, two weeks ago, right in this room, we hosted, the Mosaic Church did, a little mini conference for around 120 or so pastors and staff members and leaders from across our every nation spiritual family in Texas, New Mexico, and Mexico. And at the end, one of the Spanish-speaking pastors came up to me to thank me for hosting him that week, and he said this. He said, Morgan, we have an expression in Spanish for what you all at Mosaic Church did for us this week. It's called, he said, we say this, you threw the kitchen through the window. You threw the kitchen through the window. It means you did it all. You went away above and beyond. Now, some of you are staring at me. You're like, that doesn't make sense. I know because it's translated from Spanish, not English. It's amazing. Maybe we should start using it after all, but we don't. Because again, it's a Spanish idiom. But later on in this very chapter, Luke 14, a few verses later, Jesus says this same thing again. He says, if you don't hate your parents, you can't be my disciple. Is Jesus overturning the commandment to honor father and mother? Let's ask, did Jesus hate his own mother? No, he loved Mary all the way to the end, even as he's suffering on the cross. No, he's using, again, an idiom here to say, your love for me must be way beyond even family love. 
And again, in the same way here, when he says, don't invite just your friends and family to the party, he explains what he means. He says, because if you only invite your friends, if you only invite your relatives and rich neighbors, they could pay you back. But he says, because his kingdom is built around the principle of spiritual reversal, he says this, oh, but when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, lame and the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they can't repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Here's Jesus' teaching. Here's the point. If we only use our money and resources in a way that elevates ourselves, if we only use our means to only advance ourselves, if we only use our money in a way that brings benefit to us, advances us, makes us feel good and look good, and is centered in the end on us, it shows we don't understand the kingdom of God. If we you don't use our money and give away, don't give away our money to the, to the point that it even prevents us somehow from being all we could be. If we don't remember that the point of money is not to just be personally elevated, but to elevate others as well. If we don't do that at that point, we've forgotten what the spiritual life is and what following Jesus is all about. He's saying, give away your money to the point that maybe it even lowers your lifestyle, that's the teaching, and that's what he means. And right now, some of you, you're thinking what that host was thinking. This is completely unreasonable. It's unreasonable. What do you mean money isn't just to be used to benefit myself? What do you mean use my money in such a way it advances others, not just me? Like, why host a banquet at all, Jesus? That's the whole point of it. I mean, the idea of not maximizing my earning potential and instead giving to the point I don't take all the trips, buy all the clothes, get the third house and all the stuff, that's so un-American, <laughs> Jesus. That's completely unreasonable. And if you're thinking that, you're right. You're right. It's straight up unreasonable, illogical, doesn't make sense to our minds or our culture. And let me tell you, it didn't make sense to their minds and their culture either. Which is why, of course, he's telling them this. So on one hand, number one, sure, it doesn't make sense. Extraordinary, sacrificial giving is unreasonable. Oh, but then again, when you think about it, number two, Jesus also teaches us, number two, why extraordinary sacrificial giving is completely reasonable. And to begin, let me tell you a little story. Historians tell us that a few centuries after the life of Christ, when multiple devastating plagues ripped through the Roman Empire in the first few centuries AD, Christians responded in an unprecedented way. At the height of what became known as the Plague of Cyprian, 5,000 people a day were said to be dying in Rome. The city was completely ill-prepared to help deal with the sick or with the mass death that happened. And to make matters worse, you may know, the Roman doctors, the pagan priests, the nobles, the ruling class fled infected areas in droves. The basic Roman response was one of flight. But even though the Romans fled and the pagan priests fled, the Christians stayed. And in Rome, the Christians buried not just their own, but the pagans who had died without funds for a proper burial. They also supplied food for up to 1,500 people a day. And in Antioch, over in Syria, the number of destitute persons being fed by the church in that time had reached 
3,000 people a day. And during another plague, the plague in Alexandria, when nearly everyone else again fled, the early Christians risked their lives for one another and for their pagan neighbors by simple deeds of washing the sick, offering water and food, consoling the dying. And of course, many of them died in the process. And when some sufferers of the plague recovered and had been nursed back to health by Christians, many of the Romans became Christians and rejected their polytheistic paganism, not because of theology, not because of good sermons or great worship music, but because of great, extravagant, sacrificial generosity. And one specific young Christian man who was impacted by all of this was named Pacomius, as we call him now, Saint Pacomius, who lived around 300 AD. And Pacomius was around 20 years old when the Romans came through and conscripted him into the army. And to keep these men they had forced into the army from running away, the Romans would put them in prison camps and keep them there until they could get them out to train them. These prison camps, as you might imagine, were places of destitution, disease, sickness, illness, death, lack of food, lack of water. But while Pacomius was in prison, in this prison camp, strangers would come around every day to his prison and bring him bread and food and water and kept him and the other inmates alive. And he was so touched by this and blessed by this and impacted by this that he began to ask, who are these people? Who are these strangers? And he found out that these strangers were members of a strange new cult in the Roman Empire, that they were called Christians, Galileans, followers of the way. And when he was released from the army, he sought out some Christians and he became one himself. And he eventually became, this is a true story, a spirit-filled monk who spoke in tongues and healed the sick and trained thousands for ministry. What had impacted him? Again, not great theology, not great sermons, not great worship music. What changed his life was the hallmark of those who claimed to follow Jesus. Generosity, extravagant, sacrificial generosity. And this kind of thing happened so often. And so many people were becoming Christians that after Emperor Constantine died, the Roman emperor who legalized Christianity, another emperor after Constantine came to power. His name was Julian. And Julian tried to revert and drag the Roman Empire back to paganism. And he began to use tax dollars to fund the construction of temples to the Roman god Jupiter. But his efforts to turn his nation and empire back to Roman gods failed. Why? It was because of what looked like the unreasonable generosity of the Christians. And look at what Emperor Julian himself said about his own failure. He wrote this letter to a group of pagan priests. He said, atheism, what he called Christianity, because they couldn't, we, couldn't, we don't worship a God we can see, has been specially advanced through the loving service rendered to strangers and through their care for the burial of the dead. It is a scandal that there is not one single Jew who is a beggar and that the godless Galileans care not only for their own poor, but for ours as well, while those who belong to us look in vain for the help that we should render them. And while that may have looked unreasonable to the world around, unreasonable to the world outside, I want to tell you, it was completely reasonable to these first Christians. Because for Christians, of course, it was completely reasonable to give in an extraordinary, sacrificial way because they actually had a reason. It was logical because they had a logic, a logos, a word, another kind of logic at work in their lives. And here's what I mean. And follow me for a moment. 
overarching. Even this patronage system in the first century was a cultural perspective. It was a financial viewpoint that influenced how people use their money. It was the mentality from which the whole patronage system, the whole party system was developed. And it was summed up with a single Latin word, and here it is. It's the word liberalitas. And liberalitas looked like this. Liberalitas looked like a Roman ruler, a Roman pontiff, a Roman Caesar going through a town and liberally throwing handfuls of money at the crowd, printed with that Roman ruler's image on it. And this word, the word liberalitas. Why? They did this to buy the people's affection. In other words, you gave a little now to get something for yourself later. It was a way of saying, look at what I've done for you. Now you owe me. The coin was a reminder that they owed the emperor. Liberalitas meant, I gave to you, now you owe me. And liberalitas is what Jesus is actually hitting square on, right on the head. That's in the background of the minds of all the people at this patron party. He's confronting the internal motive of why people gave. Sure, think about it. The host was giving, but who was he giving to? Those who already had in the hopes that he would get a return. In other words, he was giving to get something for himself. That is liberalitas. And liberalitas was the hallmark of first century culture giving. You gave to get. You only gave when you thought it could benefit you. But when Jesus came, he introduced a radical new concept, an entirely new way of giving. Not liberalitas, but caritas, where we get our word charity from. Caritas is exactly the opposite. It is giving and not expecting to be repaid. Jesus introduced an entirely new way of giving. Before Jesus, before the Christian faith, there was no such thing as charity. You would never give and not expect something in return. Oh, but Jesus said, when you give in this way, when you give without expecting something in return, when you give with no strings attached, with no agenda other than to give to someone else, bless someone else, then he said, you will be known as something in specific. Earlier in the Gospel of Luke, same book, chapter 6, he said, Oh, but I say, love your enemies. Do good to them and lend to them. Look at this. Without expecting to get anything back, then your reward will be great. And you will be children of the Most High because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. Merciful. In other words, he's saying, when you give without expecting to get, it'll look to others like this. Like father, like son. Like father, like daughter. Like father, like children of the Most High. Why would it be this way? It's because he said, your heavenly father is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked In other words, God has been kind to people like you, like me, like us. And he is kind to those who will never thank him, who can never do anything for him. And that's the reason why we would give. That's why extraordinary sacrificial giving is reasonable. It's a new kind of logic. Let me ask you, do you you give like that? Do we give like that? The Romans gave. And the patrons gave like they saw their king give. 
Christians gave in a different way because of how they saw their new king give. And how, let me tell you, how and if you give today reveals actually which kind of king you serve. Caesars who only give to get or Jesus who gives to bless. So let's ask then, all this in mind, point one and point two. Is it reasonable or unreasonable to give in an extraordinary sacrificial way? What would you say? Well, in a way, of course, it is a trick question. Yes, setting you up, it's both. And yet, in the end, we're about to see that what Jesus shows us here is that maybe, maybe logic and reason has nothing little to do with generosity at all. Number three, when Jesus wanted to drive his point home, when he wanted to make his different kind of giving concept crystal clear so that no one there would miss it that day, he told them a final parable. He told parable number two because someone spoke up. By the way, bad decision. Spoke up in response to parable number one. A gentleman at the table said, when one of those at the table heard him said this, he said, to Jesus, to Jesus, square in the eye at Jesus, Blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. Now, you only say something like this to Jesus when you're pretty sure you're getting in. You only call it out like this, wine glass and hand like, let's toast our future together, Jesus. When you're confident, you're going to make it through. And so to this man who responded in this way, Jesus tells a second and final parable verse 16 he replied a certain man was preparing a great banquet another kind of party and invited many guests kind of like the one you're at right now at the time of the banquet he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited come for everything is now ready and of course you know that frequently in Jesus's parables there's someone who represents God our heavenly father someone who represents Jesus someone who represents maybe someone in the crowd and sometimes someone who represents us and here we have someone there's a wealthy man preparing a great banquet out but what happens when the wealthy man who represents God sends his servant represents Jesus out but they all alike, verse 18, began to make excuses. The first said, ah, I just bought a field. I'm like a new homeowner. You know, I gotta go see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I just bought five yoke of oxen. Like, I've got a real big business deal happening, Jesus, and I'm on my way. Please excuse me. Still another said, hey, I'm in love. What could be greater than love? I'm just married, so I can't come. But the servant came back and reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered the servant, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, crippled, blind, and lame. Sir, the servant said, what you ordered has been done, but there is still room. Then the master told his servant, go out to the roads and country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. Now you'll notice here that the master about this final group of people welcomed to his feast said, compel them, bring them, like drag them. He didn't say, invite them. Why would he say something different to the final group than he said to the first? 
Well, those living in the roads and the country lanes. In the old King James, some of you know, it says famously, those living in the highways and the hedges. Those were our equivalent of the homeless, of the destitute. Those whose only home was a bush or a tree or a back alley. And to those, those with nothing, Jesus said, not invite them, bring them. But why not invite them? Here's why. It's because of what that word invited mean in their culture. If you were invited to a banquet, you would only come if you could reciprocate, if you could give in return. Cultural custom demanded a quid pro quo. Oh, but this final group of people here could give only quid pro nada. They could only give nothing. The point is they could not, would not be able to accept an invitation because they knew that if they said yes, they would be now on the hook. They would owe the one inviting them, but they had nothing to repay them with. So they went into the feast, not because they were invited, but because they were simply brought with no strings attached. Meaning this, Those who will eat in the coming feast of the kingdom of God are those who know they don't deserve to get in at all. They can't do anything. They can't reciprocate. They can only be brought in by the sheer generosity of the master of ceremonies, which also shows you this. In the end, generosity, oh, it's got far less to do with reason or logic or if someone deserves it or not. No, extraordinary sacrificial generosity has everything to do with love. With love. The kind of love that costs the self to provide for another. And by the way, didn't Jesus, come on, do this for us? Didn't he demonstrate this over and over for us as the master of ceremonies? Didn't he come? Come on, John chapter 2, do a wedding in Cana. Turn water into wine for some tipsy, unprepared, ungrateful guests and show himself to be the true master of ceremonies. Didn't he, at the end of his life, walk into a room full of prideful men and wash their feet? The ultimate act of lowly hospitality. Didn't he say while he washed their feet, oh, in my father's house, there are many rooms where you will be provided for at his cost, at my cost. And wasn't Jesus, before he came to this world, a part of the perfect forever relational feast within the trinity oh he was and so the one who said that the one who had all of that went to the cross and he died and he paid the cost but not so that we could be invited in because that could mean we could repay him or do something to deserve it no but he paid it so that we could be brought in we are those hear me in the highways in the hedges in the roads in the back alleys who are only able to be brought in Because of the love, the sacrificial, extraordinary, in one way, unreasonable generosity of Jesus Christ toward the wicked and towards the ungrateful. And to be brought in, in the end, church, just means you just say yes. You say yes, I'll come. Yes, Jesus, I'll follow you to your Father's feast. Which means now, three things. Let's apply this teaching as we begin to close. Number one, the teaching of Jesus means, number one, that for those who say yes to Jesus, here's the good news, we're following him towards a feast. Yeah, there's gonna be suffering and cost and pain along the way, but in the end, our future, for those who follow Jesus, there is feasting and eating and embrace and love for forever. Number two, this is why 
Hospitality, yeah, is so important for churches to demonstrate towards their communities. And why when you serve here in some way, maybe you're in a coffee team or usher team or greeters or street ministry or student ministry or kid ministry or some other kind of service here, when you give hospitality away, you're living out Jesus' teaching. And number three, finally, this is why. When you're a follower of Jesus and you're deciding to move from being a non-giver to someone who gives away an intentional percentage of their income. By the way, because dollars never impress Jesus. Only percentage. When you're deciding, you don't ask, does this make sense? Is this reasonable? You don't ask, what about this? Or I've got to pay off this or go towards that. Those things are important. But all that stuff in your budget, you get something for that in return. A degree. A car, a house, clothes, stuff you don't even use anymore, but you're still paying for from three Christmases ago. Okay? You don't ask about that. You only ask, have I been loved? Have I been loved by the ultimate master of ceremonies who's paid for me to be brought in at his own expense? Let me tell you, followers of Caesar, they only give when they can get something back. Followers of Jesus give with no strings attached because of love. And church, I want to tell you, I'm so grateful and so thankful to be a part of a church who gives like that. Can you say amen to at least some of this today? Let me close and we'll begin to close and Pastor Barnabas will come up here. Father, we thank you in Jesus' name for your word to us as challenging as it is for all of us, every single heart, every single culture. It's challenging to them then. It's challenging to us now. Lord, we're thankful for your grace in it toward us. Lord, that you came for us in the highways and the hedges, the roads and the back alleys, so that we could be brought in at your own expense to your Father's feast. And that's the gospel. And we're thankful for that today so much. And Lord, I'm praying in this next season, this next month, Lord, I'm praying that we would be able to release a whole wave of generosity within our community at large. Open our hearts and hands to be able to give and bless. We thank you for it today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more info about how to get and stay connected to Mosaic Church, please visit us online at www.mosaicchurchaustin.com or download our app from your app store.